There are some strange things in Scripture, are there not? I mean, just a, a read through the book of Ezekiel or Revelation, and you will scratch your head and think, what are these guys talking about? And especially when we come and we smack against something that doesn't meet our senses, what we can see with our eyes or hear or what we can touch. When we're talking about the spiritual realm, things are strange for us because we have no way to analyze those things. In this preface to his fictional The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a, ma- a magician with the same delight. You see, there, he is saying that there are two problems that we have when we approach issues of the spiritual realm of demons and the devil. We either don't believe in it because we can't evaluate it with our senses, or we believe too much in it. We ascribe too much power to the devil and the demons. Today, in our text, God is peeling back the curtain, as it were, and giving us a glimpse of of the spiritual realm as it touches to the realm that we live in. And in our scientific age, where materialism has reigned dominant, our world is has been disenchanted. We don't see meaning in rocks and trees and the weather and sickness. We know these are natural phenomenon, and so we have been enlightened. But the Scriptures don't care about our enlightenment. In fact, they usually unsettle us because they don't care. And so in our text this morning we see how God intervenes in the life of one man, Saul, and sends an evil spirit to torment him. And uh, this section, beginning in chapter 16 and ending in chapter 20, is a section in 1 Samuel about the rise and fall of David in the court of Saul. It's a chiasm, and a chiasm is a reverse parallelism. That means that the first chapter roughly is equivalent to chapter 20, and the second chapter is uh, roughly equivalent to chapter uh, 19. And what they're doing is they're trying to make a sandwich. And remember, they're oral culture. They listen. And so they they look for repeated themes. They look for repeated words. The way they tell the story is meant for them to hear it so that they can remember it. And so this chiasm gives us two episodes of David's rise in the court of Saul, followed by the center, which says that he found favor in Saul's court, and Saul loved him, followed by two more episodes of downfall, where Saul becomes jealous and begins to persecute, and finally David is expelled from Saul's court. They both begin with Samuel, and they both begin in Ramah. 
uh, and uh, begin and end in Rama. So this section, we're, we're coming to now verse 14 of chapter 16, right in the middle of David's rise to favor in Saul's court. And what's interesting is that the Hebrews, they're not as concerned about chronology as we might be when we tell history. Now, that's not to say that the book of 1 Samuel is not chronological. It is. But he sometimes takes episodes and, and scenes in the life of an individual and uses them outside of their chronology to prove a point. So he selects two episodes that show David favorably. Those episodes are not in chronological when we David and David is younger. He's not Saul's armor bearer. He's not in Saul's service. In fact, Saul doesn't know him. Now, this is not a problem for the scriptures. The scriptures are true in everything that they say, and they're inerrant. The, the author is taking material and telling a story theologically. He wants us to see David in a certain light. And he wants to show it. So he's not concerned about chronology. And I will point that out when we come to those parts in the text. The question we're asking is, how will God begin to depose Saul and elevate David as king? So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14. It's also printed in your bulletin. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this portion of your word. A difficult portion in many ways. A portion that peels back the curtain so that we see the unseen. Father, give us eyes to see. Help us to understand the mysteries, the ways in which you work in the world, which are inscrutable. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. So verse 14 flows from verse 13. And there in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, you might get the impression that 
the Spirit of God can only be in one person at a time. It seems to have rushed upon David and departed from Saul. And in our current culture, which is so preoccupied with power, right? we, are, we have conceived of power in, as a zero-sum game. That is, if you have power and I don't, the only way for me to get power is to take it from you. Right? This is Marxist thinking. But the scriptures are not Marxist. And they're not talking about the Spirit in terms of a zero-sum game. It's not as if the Spirit can only be in one king at a time. But what is taking place is God is removing the ability for Saul to govern and rule his people. Remember, when the Spirit descends on someone in the Old Covenant... It is to fulfill a function, an office, to carry out a mission. The Spirit of God God comes upon the judges and they deliver God's people. The Spirit of God comes upon a king and he rules in justice and uprightness. Secondly, God removing his spirit from Saul is not a proof text that we can lose our salvation. Saul has not demonstrated that he is a part of the people of God that is circumcised of heart. You remember what Paul says. He says that not all Israel is Israel, but only those who are circumcised in their heart. It's the heart that matters. And Saul is more concerned with addicts. How's this going to look? What's the PR on this? How can I spin my sin so it's not too bad? How can I just do my own way, go my own way with people thinking that I'm following God? And that is not the testimony of somebody who's had their heart changed. So Saul is not becoming unregenerate. It's probable that Saul was never regenerate. And there's a warning here for us. You may not rest and trust In your baptism, baptism does not save you. Baptism includes you in the people of God and it looks for the fruit of repentance, a life of somebody who's been justified, which loves God from their heart. So be warned as we look at the life of Saul. But it gets worse. It's not just that the Lord took his spirit, but the Lord sent a spirit, an evil spirit. To torment Saul. Saul is not only not able to rule in justice. He's not able to be a king like God has called him to be. But now he's he's not even able to be a whole person. He's tormented. He's depressed. Now, we ask the question, why is this here? Why did... God, peel back the curtain and and let us see that this spirit is from him to torment him. You you think of authors nowadays, we we fixate on the subjective, my experience. You You might hear the author say something like this. The spirit of God departed from Saul and from that moment he entered into a deep depression. He couldn't seem to control his thoughts. It was like darkness enveloped him. One moment he didn't have the energy to get out of bed, and the next moment he was so seething with anger that he tried to pin his servant to the wall with his spear. That's 
from Saul's perspective, but God gives it from his perspective. He doesn't give us the subjective experience of Saul. One commentator I admire from the 19th century said this, the cause of the disease, that is his torment, as we commonly speak, is supernatural. The cure employed is natural. The inference is that it is impossible to draw a sharp line of distinction between the two spheres of supernatural and natural. They are in closer connection than is commonly recognized. God would have us see that the line separating the unseen realm and the seen is not as divided as we might like. There are two things that I want to draw out from God taking His Spirit from Saul and sending an evil spirit to torment him. The first is the necessity of the Spirit for ordering our way rightly and the danger of grieving Him. And the second is the spiritual cause of torment. So let's look at the first. The necessity of the Spirit for ordering our way rightly. Without the Spirit empowering Saul, he cannot rule right. He cannot rule as a king is called to rule. And this is what we find in the life of Saul. From here on out, it is a slide all the way down to the grave, ending at the end of 1 Samuel with his own death and the death of all of his sons. But in the meantime, he wasted precious time, resources, and energy hunting down David, who through the entire episode is innocent and becomes an exemplar for what it looks like to be faithful. Saul can't rule without the Spirit. His kingship is doomed to fail. Now, we aren't Saul. We've not been called to be kings of Israel. But God has given us the Spirit to to rule our own lives, to order them correctly, to order them according to His Word. And without the Spirit, we are not able to do that. And God has given the Spirit to those who have put their faith in Christ. But it is possible for us to grieve the Spirit. It is possible for us to rebel and sin so that the effects of the Spirit in your life, that we are walking by the Spirit, instead walking according to the flesh. We've not set our mind on the things that are above, but on the things that are on the earth. As Paul has warned over and over again, the works of the flesh which are evident, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They end in death. And it's it's possible for a Christian to make a complete shipwreck of their life. It is possible to have your life go completely off the rails because you are no longer being driven, guided by the Spirit. Your life is not being rightly ordered according to the Spirit. Now, God's grieving does not imply that He has passions or that He changes, but He is speaking in our language so that we can understand. We know what grief is. We know that when he says we've grieved the Spirit, it's because we have indulged in sin. It's because we have loved sin more than we have loved righteousness. It's 
because we have rebelled against God. It's not that God leaves you. It's not that the Spirit departs from you like Saul. But your experience of the Spirit, because of your sin, is not the same. It's diminished. In fact, the Westminster Confession has this stunning statement in chapter 5, section 5 on providence. It says this, The most wise and righteous and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. We may indeed be disciplined for our sin. And that may be that we don't experience. We don't experience that communion and fellowship and love of God. But Jesus wasn't telling a fiction when He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He wasn't giving platitudes like, I'll pray for you, and then never praying for you. He was speaking truth, but your experience is shaped by sin. You will not realize that God is present because He is hiding Himself from you because of your sin. The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of holiness. And as such, we must take care that we guard our call fiercely to conform our lives to Christ, to put to death the sins that so easily beset us, to lay aside that weight and to pursue Christ. So with Paul, I I urge you to keep in step with the Spirit. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is and put to death the deeds of the flesh. Don't grieve the Spirit. The Spirit is needed to order your way rightly. And secondly, I want to be be very cautious here. There are spiritual causes to the torment that Saul experiences. We are seeing what Paul outlines in in Romans 1, the giving over to a debased mind. Saul has proven over and over again, that he refuses to be under the Word of God. He refuses refuses the authority of God. He would rather operate from his own authority. And so God is giving him over to a debased mind. Many have experienced depression or have felt the terror of something stalking them. It has been described, depression has been described as a darkness that covers you, that keeps you from doing normal things. Now, I do not believe that believers can experience demon possession. I do believe that they can be oppressed by demons. He is the accuser of the brethren, constantly spewing out lies, trying to get us to believe that our salvation is It's not sure and steadfast in Christ pointing to our sin and our inability to keep the law. 
and accusing us. And we are to do battle against Satan's lies. I don't think it would be helpful to veer off into superstition about whether or not you are being oppressed by an evil spirit. But what is essential is that you see that there are often spiritual causes for the physical things that we experience. Now, I'm not suggesting that after the service we should have some sort of exorcism. But texts like these should cause us to examine our hearts. To see if there might be ways that we have grieved the Spirit. And God might be speaking to us in torment, in, in depression, in our doubts, and our fears. What is God trying to say to you? What is He trying to get a hold of you? What sin do you need to flee from? What lie are you listening to and believing? We need the Spirit to order our way rightly. And we must not discount that everything in this life is backed by spiritual things. There are things that are going on that we do not understand. We should not take those lightly. As C.S. Lewis said, we don't need to invest too much in them because Jesus has won. He has defeated the enemy. And we hope and trust in that. But in the meantime, we still have an enemy. He has been dealt a blow, but we are crushing his head under our feet. And so, learn from this the importance of walking according to the Spirit. Now, Saul's servants realize something is not quite right in verse 15. And they rightly discern that this Spirit is sent from God that is tormenting him. They suggest a solution. Find a skilled musician so that when Saul gets in a mood, he can play for them. Now, remember I told you that this story is meant to be heard. And that means that the audience, when they're listening, is going to be listening for repeated words. Saul in verse 17, and this is so ironic, he says, Saul says to his servants, provide for me, provide for me. Where have we heard that? If you flip back to verse 1 of chapter 16, this is what the Lord says to Samuel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king. Remember, we said God would see to it. That's what providing means. And now Saul, in great irony, wants his servants to provide him with someone who would relieve him from this evil spirit. And who do they suggest? The one that God has provided to be king. Saul never would have had him come into his court had he known that he was the Lord's anointed. But Saul is not in control. God is. God lifts up one man and puts down another at his sovereign prerogatives. And the text is drawing our attention to Saul's failure to see. He can't see because he has not the Spirit of God. And David is introduced as a man who is skillful in playing, a man of valor. 
prudent in speech and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. All of these are striking characteristics, but none so impressive as the last. The Lord is with him. The Lord is not with Saul. He has departed from Saul, but he is with David. God begins to depose Saul and exalt David by having Saul rely upon David. Saul is not yet jealous, and David is a welcome relief. He is tormented by this evil spirit, and David, skillful in play, becomes insensible to Saul, such that he loves him in verse 21. And sends to his father to have him brought into his service and becomes his armor bearer. And here, this is where the chronology is a little bit off, right? Because the David and Goliath story, at the end of that, he's going to ask the question, who is this young man? Who is his family? So that I can reward them. And then he brings them, and he's a part of Saul's army after that. So, But the point is that he's showing two episodes that paint David favorably. And those will mirror two more episodes that will paint David as losing favor with Saul. That's the point. We see that David, who has the Spirit, is excelling Saul, while Saul, devoid of the Spirit, is declining. David, by the Spirit, is a skilled musician. He's a skilled warrior. He's a skilled speaker. On top of that, he's handsome. He's got it all. He's got everything. And now Saul relies on his skills. Now, surely David thought to himself as a little boy, I need to learn to play this lyre so that I can one day pacify the king when an evil spirit torments him. Or, I better defeat this bear and lion so that one day I can beat Goliath. Or, I better practice my poetry so that I can be a skilled speaker when I rise to the king's court. Is that what David did? No. What did David do? He did what was right in front of him to do. How would he know the least family in Israel, the last son of his father's household, how would he ever know that God would call him to be the future king of Israel? But imagine if he said, well, I'm not going to be king, so, I mean, I'm just going to be guarding these few sheep. Who cares if a lion gets them? I'm not putting my life at risk. Why should I learn this liar anyway? I mean, I'll probably just get mocked by my older brothers. But that's not what David did. David did the best thing that he could do that was right in front of him. How many of you have agonized in your life over decisions? What college to go to? What house to buy? Where to settle down? What spouse to marry? And you've wanted to know the will of God. If I could just have some kind of talisman that would tell me this is the right path. This is the will of God for you. And you agonize. The problem with this kind of thinking that just seeped into the evangelical church is summed up by one scholar. He says, Conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is. 
and he has laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover the path and God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow, the one God has planned for us. And if and when we make the right choice, then we will receive his favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and succeed in life. If we choose rightly, we will experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. How many of you have thought of the will of God like that? Like a pathway that you could miss? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me be clear. You cannot miss the will of God for your life. That sounds bold. If you are faithful to do what God has said, which is what? Be like Christ. The little decisions in your life are not as important as you following Christ. Jesus sums it up the best way. In Matthew 6, verse 25. He is talking about people's anxiety over clothing, over what to wear, or anxiety about food. And he wraps it up at the very end. He says, Therefore, do not think, what shall we with the Gentiles seek after all these things? And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see, viewing the will of God as a pathway that you could possibly miss leads to fear and passivity. You don't want to get on the wrong path so you don't do anything. You never step out and just act and do what's right in front of you because you're afraid. It might not be the will of God. I agonized over this when I first became a Christian because before I was a Christian, my life was a wreck. I was 20-something years old and already been divorced, remarried. Would I ever be on the right path? Could I ever find it? And it probably was not the original path, obviously. I'd missed that years ago. Little did I know, that's not how it works. God took all my brokenness, all my sins, and He used them for His glory to accomplish His purposes. Not mine. Not so that I can be aligned with His will. God draws straight with crooked sticks. The will of God for your life is that you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And you do what's right in front of you to do. David embodies the proverb well, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. What do you have right in front of you that you have not putting your heart into? 
and do not tell me I'm retired. That is not an excuse if your vision of retirement is I get to do nothing, you are wrong. Your retirement is one of the best seasons in your life for you to be the most fruitful for God. Don't waste your retirement. Don't sit at home doing nothing. Find something that God has gifted you to do and do it with all your might. For His glory, seek First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. God uses people in all of their brokenness and blemishes, all their mistakes. He takes them where they are, not where they should be. Thank God for that, right? He takes us where you are, And He shapes and molds you and uses you for His purposes. Don't waste your time trying to figure out what the will of God is for you buying your next car. Or whatever thing that's causing you anxiety. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But you can't do that apart from the Spirit. You need the Spirit to walk rightly to order your way rightly so don't grieve the spirit you need him don't give your life over to sin give your life over to righteousness amen amen Amen. let's pray father thank you for the spirit the spirit of christ who takes the things of god and makes them ours who unites us to your Son, in whom is life and light, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom, in him is salvation. And we are in him by your Spirit. Father, we have sinned, and we do sin. We don't want to grieve your Spirit We don't want to cease to experience that communion and joy and fellowship of being with Father. We plead, David, take not your from us, but create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit in us. Then we will walk in accordance with your word. Then our way will be ordered rightly. And then we will find your will by doing what is right in front of us to do. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for giving us your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See,